Now are new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column. I am extremely excited to be having a conversation with these two fellows today, at least having a conversation with one of them. The other one has promised to stay mostly silent, not because I asked him to, but because he's he's terrified to have a conversation here because he believes himself white. Um, yeah. but my, someone my, who, my privilege was showing, <laughs> so I was trying to hide it. But know? someone who is, is above that kind of gutter thinking uh, is one Thomas Chatterton Williams, who is a uh, famed essayist and author. And I think I can say that we're friends at this point. That's uh, a fair thing to say. Good. Yeah. I like that. And uh, the author of a book that I'm super excited about that I've been thinking about since I, I first heard that he was writing it some time ago and since first reading it back in December, Self-Portrait in Black and White, Unlearning Race uh, is the subtitle, and it is a phenomenal book that I hope you've already read. And if you haven't, by the end of this podcast, you'll desperately want to read it. Thomas, thank you for coming all the way to Williamsburg to have a conversation with me about your new, exciting, wonderful book. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's a really long wind up. I'm sorry. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited. You know, I will say this before. These are the safe things I can talk about. Yeah. Is um, <laughs> your excitement about this book is a little weird. Is it? Um, yeah. I think Thomas is amazing and, uh-huh. and, and, uh, MacArthur genius level. Yeah. That's right? true. Say it again. What a genius this man is. Um, but, uh, when, when you told me about this, book, <laughs> you were saying like, uh, talking about your favorite parts in it. And I was like, you know what? Yeah. It's, it's actually not like a Mission Impossible movie. You're like, the best part is here. And then there's this bit. Um, and I'm like, okay, let me just read it. Let me just read it. So yeah. I understand your long wind up and I understand your excitement. Yeah. And I think in this case that it's justified too. Yeah. So. Um, so Thomas, usually when I have conversations with authors for these special dispatches that mm-hmm. we record, I will do a thing where I try to summarize the book for them, um, both to demonstrate to them that I have actually read and understand what you're writing about and to make certain that we're on the same page. I'm not going to do that in this particular case, mostly because I think anyone who listens to the podcast has heard me do some version of, I think, what is like the, the, the thesis, thesis yeah. of this yeah. book yeah. Um, in, a, in a number of different instances. And I would much rather hear you talk about it in that way. And you don't have to summarize the whole of the book. People will definitely still need to pick it up and read it for themselves, but it would be great to have you kind of top line this for folks before we get into a conversation that I hope will go well beyond the pages of the book and talk about the experience of writing it and all that other stuff. Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, I describe the book as a first person essay against race. Mm -hmm. Um, I uh, have a black father that was born in the segregated South. He's old enough to be my grandfather. He grew up in the thirties, forties and fifties. He was well into adulthood before civil rights. Um, my mother's white evangelical Christian from Southern California. And I grew up in New Jersey in the eighties and nineties, uh, really believing the black, white binary that a drop of black blood makes you black. And that race is a real category. It's an either or proposition. And I basically held on to this belief until I was in my early thirties living in Paris, married to a French, uh, blonde haired, blue eyed woman. And assuming my kids would be light-skinned black kids because it was either or. Mm -hmm. And I even convinced my French white wife that this was the case. And it was very foreign to her European mind to conceive of race, uh, to conceive of hypodescent and things like this. But then my daughter, Marlo, was born in 2013. And it was really realizing that it would be kind of insane to send her out into the world um, just simply describing herself in these like old plantation terms is, you know, a quadroon or something like that, you mm-hmm, know? And mm-hmm. I really, and, and it wasn't that I saw my daughter 
who has blonde hair, blue eyes, really light skin, could pass for Swedish. Um, it wasn't that I saw her as white. It was that, I, I, that those categories kind of fell apart for me at that moment. I mean, I had to rethink every easy thing that I just assumed about myself. Her birth and presence in my life tore apart the foundations that I just took for granted. Mm -hmm. But it ultimately like, liberated me a lot. I came out of the experience of realizing that my daughter, like, what does it mean for her to be white if she's 20% sub-Saharan Saharan African descended? What does it mean for me to be black if I can produce a child that looks like this? After I processed all that, it sent me back out into the world simply um, liberated and able to create myself mm -hmm. and to define myself outside of these kind of ready-made color categories that imply hierarchies that are based in the collision of Africa and Europe through slavery. Mm -hmm. One, it's both wonderful and strange to talk to somebody who thinks about this stuff in a, a way that runs so close to the way that I do. So in a way, I'm just sort of taken aback by it, even after knowing you and us having talked about this in other contexts and me having sort of poured over the text. Um, one of the things that I really love about the book, uh, as you just summarized, is just how personal it is and how much of yourself and your own thinking in that moment you reveal as you go through the book and you talk about taking your daughter home on that ride and having to decide like what song that you'll want to play. That like, first cultural indoctrination, yeah. you know? I thought about the same thing. I thought about it most when I was thinking about like what lullabies will I sing for my daughter? One, because I didn't want her to become obsessed with nursery rhymes. Um, and two, <laughs> because I wanted her to love Donny Hathaway and mm -hmm. Marvin Gaye in the way that I did. It's manifested itself in some really bizarre ways where I sing songs to her that are completely just not context appropriate at all. <laughs> I, like I'm Sexual healing. For, well, <laughs> hasn't, it hasn't reached that part quite wake yet. Up, wake up, um, wake up. I think I might actually get in Let's trouble get at that point. Night. Yeah. No, I, I sing um, For All We Know at bedtime, which That's great. For All We Know We May Never Meet Again, which, which is, is a little dark, <laughs> so but dark. I, I kind of think is wonderful. Yeah. It's true. Like you're going to bed and the song's about how much I love you and how wonderful you Wait, are. Do you have a good singing voice? You must. I'm great. I'm actually, I'm pretty phenomenal. I was going to start, no, please don't. but it's like two men sitting across that, from me in a house. Like, There's a bed over there in there. Don't, room and don't, just, don't get him proceed singing. too quickly. Um, but, but I just want to say you guys think about uh, your, your kids in a way that I don't. I'm just like, I don't know. She'll figure it out. I literally just think, I honestly am like, just fine. She'll, she'll figure it out. She'll, yeah, she'll, she'll learn to love. She'll the learn it. Anytime I try to push something on her, she's not going to, she just yeah. go the other direction. So, well, but I, I mentioned that's why she goes to the school. So she goes to, <laughs> you know, in the, in the Cuban, uh, uh, cane sugar, whatever. she's like, she's like, on, like on like, uh, like, uh, like the Sandinista tour at this point. I don't even know. It's, ridiculous. it's, it's called Brooklyn. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. But I mentioned all of that because when you're describing that, you talk about making this decision to play Spiced, Feist instead yeah. of Stevie Wonder. Could you talk about that experience a little bit? Sure. I just, you know, was I going to play Another Star? Or was I going to play Musha Boom by Feist? And actually, mm. like, Feist just has this voice and the song and it's just she's soothing and she's mm -hmm. talking about the kids. And I was like, I just want to play this song that I love that I think is great for, you know, it just conveys how I feel about, like, wrapping my kid in a coat and taking her home. And, 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 and who cares? Uh, who cares if, she's, if it's a white artist, if it's a black artist? And, and actually, I think that with an artist like Feist, she has some type of universal access to what I would call soul, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, 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 that touches on kind of what I hope my daughter will have is that she doesn't make these delineations 
and that she just, she creates her own taste and, you know, mm-hmm. so, so we played Feist and, you know, there was still this voice in my, when she was born, I wasn't fully still at where I, it took me mm-hmm. finishing the book is when I actually fully got to the point, I think where, where, where you and I really agree. But, uh, the book started as me just kind of wondering what does it mean to change the race of your family? Hmm. What does it mean? Like, what does it mean if my kids can't see, um, my father and themselves. And, mm. and it was like a kind of a searching essay that I wrote in the Virginia quarterly review called black and blue and blonde. Mm-hmm. Um, I was no longer saying, I was no longer saying the stance that I had prior to that, which is that a drop of black blood makes you black. But I, I was questioning and it was really in writing the book, becoming more aware and living with my daughter as an individual and a human being, and not as some avatar of, of a racial color category. Um, and then ultimately profiling the artist and philosopher, Adrian Piper, mm-hmm. Um, for the New York Times Magazine in 2017 and spending t- like spending months talking to her about this. She's a, both of her parents are technically black. She's light enough that she um, can pass for many different things from, from a light-skinned Indian woman to Latina to some people think she's white. Mm-hmm. Um, and she retired from uh, blackness in 2012 as mm-hmm. a kind of art gesture, but also kind of seriously. And it was in talking with her that I realized the, the, the logical conclusions of everything that I was talking about and thinking about was actually like a rejection of race. And the reason is because racism creates race. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's two things that you have to do at the same time. You have to be anti-racist and you have to be against the kind of racism that really like um, perverts our society. But that is actually not enough. It's mm-hmm. not just enough to fight for the equality of these categories that actually aren't real. If we don't believe they're real, then we have to ultimately go farther and keep our eye on being anti-race. Mm-hmm. You know, that you have to be anti-racist and anti-race. Race, racism creates race. What was your thinking about race prior to this kind of change? I mean, the kind of one drop rule. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I understand what you're saying. But what, when you thought about race, I mean, has there been like a sea change, let's say 10 years ago and today, just how generally you think about race? There has been, I mean, I'm 38 years old. So it wasn't possible to even check two boxes on the census until I was already in college in the year 2000. Hmm. Um, so I very much the way uh, President Obama described it, I just checked the black box, never even was tempted or wanted to check other or anything like that. I just felt it was like kind of weird to say that you were, you're, how can you be half something? I never believed in a mixed identity. Mm-hmm. And actually that that is where I still am. I think that because everybody is in fact mixed, if you look into your own background, if you look into your own genealogy in a serious way, or you do your DNA, you're almost guaranteed to find things that will surprise you that mm-hmm. won't fit with a monolithic identity. Uh, since everybody's mixed, um, it's pointless to call people mixed because that also presumes that there are these standalone um, pure identities that some people have. Mm-hmm. So um, I never, I, my, I, my parents didn't raise me to believe that I was half white or anything like that. My dad I was lucky to have um, parents who both um, are sociologists. My father always kind of had an ambivalence about, my father doesn't really believe in, in race, but he believes that race is made real. And so he kind of, he gave, I was aware that my father, um, he would joke that my mother was a light-skinned black woman because she had black consciousness, mm-hmm. you know? And he was half serious, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Because he really believes that, like my father would say, look, he's the type of guy that would say if Rachel Dolezal is living a black life to that degree. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say she's not a black woman because race is socially constructed, mm-hmm. you know, but he did send me and my brother out into the world as black men. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think that helped us. We were, we were proud to be, I am proud of all the cultural traditions. And I, I mean, this people that was, um, 
nearly destroyed in this country, but persevered and, and even created some of the greatest aspects of American culture. I'm proud to be a member of, or to be descended from that kind of group of people. But I, but, but my belief that that's a racial group has fallen apart. There's a, there's a remark in the book. Um, I think it's a quote. I believe it's something your dad said. The notion of the other is false. false. He always would say things like that growing up. I mean, when that story, it was just a quick statement because that was when he came, um, no, that was, I was thinking that was when he came to meet my daughter. That was the second time he met my daughter. Mm. And we had had these conversations where I kind of like, I was like, she doesn't look so black, does he? Uh-huh. And the first time I said that to him when she was two weeks old and he was visiting in Paris, he was holding her and he just was like, she's just a Palomino, which is just like a, a tan colored horse. You know, uh-huh. they use horse breeding terms in Texas to talk about all these mm. um, surprising color variations that end up on the black side of the segregated tan. He was like, I had a couple of classmates in high school that were colored very similarly to, mm-hmm. to your daughter. And then, you know, he said that again in another context. He was, and he said, the notion of the other is false. And, and, you know, for me, that's Albert Murray. That's a lot of black ring. That James Baldwin has said these things. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, Albert Murray's point was always that the, the most American um, figure is the Negro. He, he contains the native American in his blood. He contains um, usually white Anglo-Saxon Protestants and he contains the African, you know, that's America is a Mongol country that basically um, is made from these three primary identities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's something else that you talk about and I, I think is perhaps alien to most people in that we don't at least open ourselves up to this fact frequently enough. But the notion that when we talk about race and we we race ourselves and others, we're often thinking in a, in a sort of utopian way that there is this notion of sort of a pure white or a pure black. Which identity. is disastrous thinking. Yeah. yeah. And it's something that's actually reinforced, um, quite, quite frankly, by a lot of these genetic ancestry testing outfits where you get this beautiful, colorful pie chart back and it tells you all of the percentages of various things that you are. But the truth is, and when I think about like Rachel Dolezal, I'm, I'm thinking about this a lot, is we all have fairly recent African ancestry. And if you go back far enough, like everyone has an African grandmother, we are all mongrels in that very fundamental sense. And the notion that even the sort of percentages that are reflected on those, on those pie charts that we get are particularly meaningful is something that I think um, is, is pretty confused uh, Absolutely. And that most people don't appreciate like the limitations uh, of those uh, of those tests. To give you an idea of the limitations, I mean, I have some need for um, the 23andMe research that I did uh, mm-hmm. when I was writing the book, uh, because it gives me a vague sense of where people came from that I have no access to because, mm-hmm. you know, um, there are not many records uh, about enslaved people uh, coming through, you know, chattel slavery. Mm-hmm. So I, I was curious to see... Um, so just some have some numbers to it, but it's nonsense in 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 a way because I uh, did the test three years ago when I was writing the book. Uh-huh. Uh, it came back with a certain like um, very accurate looking percentage of where yeah. I was from in different yeah, yeah. parts of Africa and Europe. And then when the book was excerpted in the New York Times Magazine um, a few weeks ago, fact checking had me go back into my twenty three and Me file that I hadn't looked at in three years. And the numbers had slightly changed, but like, actually they had changed in a way that I was like, this is, this is nuts. I went from 39% sub-Saharan African to 40 point something percent sub-Saharan African. And I became even more mm-hmm. Northern European. 
Wait, the, the, became te- less Swedish numbers, and they, more they, German. They change. They, I mean, you have, yeah, as change. more people participate, I see, I see. my numbers started changing. Okay, so you didn't actually get physical document. You went onto the website where yeah, you have it was updated, but it's, but it's actually it. even it's even more fluid than that. I mean, the the these tests are a bit of a black box. Like every single one of these companies have different data. Oh yeah, if you do three different use. companies, you'll have yeah. three different racial yeah, yeah. Uh, makeups. You I, know? I've read about Oprah Winfrey's experience, and it may have been on that. Um, that PBS show hosted mm-hmm. by uh, Gates, yeah, yeah. where she got different results from different people. And, and you have to really think about what that means. And yeah. got really invested in this one particular tribe and then got another test and was kind of heartbroken not to be a member of that tribe, which it, it reminded me, I, I ask about that both because you mention um, the test in your book, um, but also because there's a moment in the book where you talk about the importance of knowing who you are, knowing your ancestry and how for people who were enslaved in America and the ancestors of slaves or the descendants of slaves that I rather, um, that they don't have a sense of that identity. And in truth, I've always wondered what percentage of human beings at any point in time actually really do have a sense of their identity. At least one that's actually accurate um, because we're, we are a constellation of people. And at some point you lose the thread and there is so much. And the starting point is always arbitrary. Yeah. yeah. Why do you start? um, Why do you start when this people that probably came over like with the Huns Mm -hmm. from the Asian like steppes? Why do you start when they arrived in this part of Europe? Yeah, you, yeah. you could start elsewhere. And yeah. then that people came from, at some point, they came from even farther away. And at some point, we know that they came from right. Kenya, essentially. Like, why we just have these arbitrary starting points that create our identity. Right. And then we invest ourselves in them. And, like, the idea of, like, monolithic whiteness is really young. Because what I want to say before, to your point, is that it has not been but, like, a century or less that people of Anglo-Saxon descent considered that they shared a racial identity with, right. with Mediterranean whites yeah, who, yeah. Were, who were, who were really a race apart. Absolutely. And even closer to home, Anglo-Saxons did not consider Celtics, uh, the Irish and, 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 and these people were not white mm-hmm. in the way that they thought of themselves. I'm Irish racially Italian, different. By the way. Yeah. So <laughs> you're too serious miscegenation. <laughs> going on here. Yeah, but actually yeah. it is. What, no, of course. In yeah. what world, other than like this new American world that defines um, whiteness as, as being as far away as possible from blackness. Mm-hmm. In what world do Irish and Italian people meaningfully share an identity? But it, it is also um, something that from, you know, where I grew up uh, in Massachusetts, it was almost in a way considered miscegenation because it's not always racial categories. It is things like, you know, these cultures are so alien. They like the Irish knew what the Italians were like mm-hmm. and they applied those Italian stereotypes across the board. And it was like, you know, don't like my father, this is really my father passed away. So can't defend himself here, but <laughs> he did um, uh, jokingly refer to my mother's family as uh, guineas, uh, which is he really did. Yeah, 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 yeah sure. <laughs> Yeah. And it was like, it was like a, like a laugh of my mother would laugh about and stuff, but it was just like, they considered themselves that these people as two white people, you know, it's just a weird thing Mm -hmm. for people who grew up seeing themselves as from totally different tribes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally different linguistic traditions, totally different culinary traditions, totally different, um, phenotypes, Mm -hmm. you know, if you go around Italy, anywhere South of Milan, Mm -hmm. people do not look Irish at Mm -hmm. all, you know? But, 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 but in America, monolithic whiteness just, just became, just becomes a thing that unites even like Cubans now, you know? Yeah. 
a kind of Latino gets in this. Is it is it true? And I mean, you guys uh, both are are much more attuned to these these arguments and debates. I mean, is it seems to me that a monolithic blackness has been replaced by a sort of monolithic monolithic whiteness. I mean, I, we see so commonly on Twitter and in the world, you know, white they, the jokes. They're seriously as such a white woman thing and white this, white that. That is kind of surprising to see, particularly when you you say, well, you know, I was kind of programmed as a young person to never talk about entire groups in such a way. Well, yeah, and, with and, Sarah Jung and stuff like that, you see, yeah. you, you you can kind of. A good thinking white person is supposed to be able to take it on the chin mm-hmm. that their group mm-hmm. can, anything can kind of be said about their group because, because the burden that they carry is this kind of eternal privilege that they, that so they, they atone for. And so that's essentially a the good thing, sport right? about. And you both have, I mean, Camille and I have talked about this and this is what you have to contend with, right? Because if I say to somebody, I have nothing in common with like an Albanian person who might sort of look like me. That's right? what, yeah, the, I mean, you really do not in any meaningful way. In no meaningful way. <laughs> but the counter argument and the argument to people unlearning race mm-hmm. and, you know, or rejecting uh, racial classification as Camille does is the argument that, you know, and I'm sure our listeners are d- dying to hear the response to is that, um, you know, you can't stop being black. It doesn't matter what you think of your race. It's what other people think of your race. So if you get pulled over by the police in the, uh, the sort of conception of a sort of racist police force, they don't care how you categorize yourself. And the reason that we lump you in with the Albanian is that nothing will happen to you um, because you're both white, even though you don't have any of those common traditions and, you know, culinary, cultural, linguistic, you, you are protected because white people are treated differently. So when people say that to you, which I'm sure is very common when you yeah, talk yeah. about this. How do you respond to it? Sure. Well, first of all, your identity is a negotiation between who you think you are, who you know yourself to be, and what social institutions and other people reflect back mm-hmm. at you and tell you you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's true that uh, like a lot of people from Nigeria or people from the Caribbean who, don't, who never necessarily thought of themselves as having a monolithic black identity learn in America that they're black. Mm-hmm. And th- the argument is that it doesn't matter what you think. Um, the cop will decide what your race is. Sure. But I would say that that's just like not a good argument for, for how you decide to um, define yourself. Uh, in, in, in France where I live, race is a really fungible thing. In France where I live, my identity when I'm, you know, stopped in an airport or something like that is typically I'm red as an Arab. That doesn't yeah. make that a mm-hmm. real identity for me. Mm-hmm. I think you shouldn't define yourself by if, if society has a flawed way of thinking, that still shouldn't shape uh, who you think you are. Race is a social construct and it's a real social reality. That's why I was saying earlier that we have to, we have to imagine the world that we want, but we have to deal with the world that we actually have. So we have to have an anti-racist kind of politics that accepts that race has a reality to it the way that money or something has reality to it. We, have, we give it reality by believing in it. But we have to have an argument that argues against that. But you also, and it's a good point. I mean, you live as an Arab in France, mostly. I would imagine. I, I live, mean, I, I mean, I might look at you. I'm just saying as yeah. from a distance. It's I complicated. Mean, I, I mean, I'm, you know, the, the absurdity of t- trying to get a color swatch for your 
skin tone, but I mean, you're not you allowed know. to use food. Uh, you can't call me cafe au lait anymore. Oh. I was told, I was told yeah. in the publishing industry, somebody, that's a no go. No. Oh, really? yeah. I'm trying to think of somebody in France because I'm like, I, and I don't want to say Tariq Ramadan because I think he's kind of ruined his, you almost spit your water out. Sorry. Um, I was not expecting yeah, that yeah, level of that, yeah. accuracy. Yeah. 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 He's got a Ramadan. Not like, no, not the holiday. The, the man accused of uh, sexual assault, um, which I totally forgot about until right now. Um, but he's the, the only guy in France to actually suffer consequences, I think, for, for oh, yeah, for me yeah. Too. And yeah. I wonder but why. Like, I, <laughs> um, but you know, France has a you know, somebody who shall remain nameless, but I can name a, a writer, Tanasi Coates, who's written about being in France and about the way race is treated. When I read that, um, a long time ago, and I can't cite it because I don't really, I mean, it was an ages ago. My, my instinct was uh, as someone who's been lived in Europe for quite a long time is that it was the classic American misunderstanding of like, no, 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 this is a place of racial harmony. And it's actually quite the opposite. I mean, we have handled race, I think far better than Europeans, which haven't had the exact same, I mean, not even close to the same, you know, dynamic and, and immigration's very recent, but you see the far right governments, you see the kind of racial attacks happening fairly frequently, which you don't see as much here. So what is it? I mean, when you read that and, and when people talk about race and like, oh, you live in Europe, this is a kind of idealized place where, you know, you have good health care and um, it's much more progressive. What is it like, you know, as a black man who's not black and unlearning race in, in France? It's complicated. So, so race really is, um, I argue this in the book, race is um, fundamentally like politics, all race is local, it is locally constructed. So France is not, they do have a different way of um, conceiving race than we do here. It's uh, the, the term race uh, has been stricken from the constitution, from, from legal mm-hmm. documents. And I agree with it. If race is not real, why do we reify it mm-hmm. in our legal texts? Mm-hmm. But they don't live... That would be a perfect solution if they actually lived um, with that belief that it's not real. But of course, France is not a society that doesn't um, deal in racecraft. So, so, so there's subtle exclusions and things like that. There's a lot of xenophobia because they never had slavery within their national borders. It's different. A society that had slavery in it is fundamentally anti-black in a way that I think most European societies can't be because there's not this fear of, um, of a drop of black blood, uh, stripping you of your freedom. You know, they, they don't have that. Uh, the xenophobia that they have is not projected against Americans. They, they have a love of America and they've had a long tradition of loving, um, black American culture and things like that. And kind of also they have a way of, um, they have a, anti-Americanism in them where I think French whites pride themselves on being more cultured than, than like low white Americans who have this kind of anti-black racism. So they could celebrate a brilliant black writer like Richard Wright and kind of like laugh and scoff at the Americans that were too boorish to appreciate a genius from their own society. So for me, it's, it's complicated because in France, people might look at me, assume I'm North African as soon as I open my mouth, my fundamental identity is a national identity. It's an American identity, which is, which is quite a privilege to have there. It's quite a freeing thing to be American. Also, my kids and my wife, your kids kind of, I argue in the book that you're not just who you descend from. Once you start procreating and having kids, their identity can reach back and reshape you too. So mm-hmm. when I'm with my family, my kids' identity kind of racializes me in a different way than I would be if my kids were part Japanese or something like that. It becomes a 
thing that shapes the perception I have in society or the perception of me in society. Mm -hmm. It's interesting when, when you talk about sort of the burden of, of taking on these racial identities and carrying them around with you and racializing other people that I've often thought about it in much the same way. And I can't quite remember when I first decided, well, I'm not going to play this game anymore. Yeah. I wanted to ask you when you first decided it it wasn't, there wasn't any one particular point in time that I can really point to. Um, I, I definitely know that the influences there, um, were Zora Neale Hurston, who, um, when I read, um, I believe it's from dust tracks in the road, this, this wonderful meditation about the way that other people thought about her, um, and the way that she thought about herself, where she uses this phrase and says, race, pride, and me had to go. Um, th- that has always been at the forefront of my mind, um, as has uh, uh, some key excerpts that I'm, I'm prone to use frequently uh, from James Baldwin, thing like The Fire Next Time, although, as you've mentioned yeah. um, in some of our discussions on Twitter recently, uh, people just don't want to accept that he actually said what he said. Regularly, yeah. People want to go back and make James Baldwin coats before uh-huh. coats. yeah. But he was himself and he, and actually, and he was, he was, he was clear about what he was trying to say. Well, he was complicated. I mean, he, like many other people has, was sort of different men at different points in time. And in the the James Baldwin of the 1970s and early 1980s was a heck of a lot more, um, sort of black nationalist. He was in danger of getting canceled or precisely right. Um, he was being disregarded by a lot of the young, um, black activists, some of whom derided him because he was a homosexual. I mean, Eldridge um, Cleaver has some of the most savage prose in American letters against James Baldwin Mm -hmm. for, for not just being gay, but for, for, I believe he said, wishing that he could make himself into a kind of womb that could carry the white man's baby. Right. That's really, really disrespectful. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, keep in mind that in So On Ice is a celebration of um, rape, too, raping, of raping, yeah. raping white women as a sort of power move. And practicing on black women to get it right. Yeah. A similarly, it's, similarly, it's a terrifying book, actually. He's, he's and also, it was celebrated I, I mean, so I, I, by white I, society. I think it was like <laughs> Ramparts um, might have even published it. Then it went to a mainstream publishing house. I don't remember how it happened, but he was celebrated by Ramparts. But the same thing is also true of Bayard Rustin, mm-hmm. who was mm-hmm. both gay and heterodox in his thinking when, when, I mean, he was heterodox when it switched. I mean, the March on Washington, Bayard Rustin is kind of written out of that. He's mm-hmm. sidelined because, because of Martin Luther King Jr. was very sensitive about being about, uh, associated with yes. Rustin and with Baldwin. Because and I think Rustin had been people were arrested. calling Baldwin Martin Luther Queen, yeah, and Martin Luther right. King wanted no part of that. Yeah, and yeah. I think I think Rustin, Rustin had might have been arrested. I think in Virginia or something for for something in a public. Uh, I'll cut this out yeah. if it's wrong, <laughs> but I'm fairly certain he did. I don't, I don't remember that. It's entirely possible. But but to return back to the thought that I was trying to unpack, there's a sense in which you know, when I decided that I no longer believed in the faith that I received from my family, it was difficult because I had a faith community um, on my college campus because I'd I'd really embraced it myself before deciding to move away from it. And I knew that it would have an impact on a lot of other people, but it was quiet. It was private. It was my own. It hasn't become part of my public persona where I have to sort of talk about it frequently with others. But in having to become someone who is sort of publicly uh, associated with like sort of helping people to derace themselves, it's odd that you can't really do that quietly. Um, I suppose you could just never mention it to anyone, but it, it seems in a, in a moment when people are insisting on racializing oh, yeah. themselves and others in a way that's 
perhaps even more strident than you might have expected it to be at different points in the past. When you talk about like all the different kinds of whiteness, there's no longer. Um, There is whiteness and there is blackness. It's sharp. And uh, I believe, as you describe it in the book, a lot of the people who were historically oppressed have now embraced these racial identities that were used to oppress them and are investing them with something now. They are rebranding them perhaps, but they are strengthening them in a way that makes me so uncomfortable that I feel that it's not only appropriate, but perhaps necessary to confront the, the fiction of race. Um, Absolutely. And the, you know, there's a kind of, is. there's a kind of black person on the left who gets very upset with the, the discussion I'm trying to have and sees it as an anti-black argument, mm-hmm. which couldn't be farther from the truth. It's an anti-race argument. And I devote a lot of pages to why Asian people who are constructed as Asian, why people who are constructed as white, often with white people, there's an extra step. They need to first learn that they're raced because a lot of white people have been socialized to move through American life as a kind of invisible neutral default. And everybody uh, Hmm. who's not white is a kind of deviation from this this starting point and they don't really think of, I've had a lot of white people say, well, that's an interesting book. I don't know what I could say. Cause like, I don't have race, you know, of course you do. You, you have, you, very much. So you have a constructed yeah. race. You need to learn that. And then you need to come from a perspective of understanding how your race has been constructed and learn to learn to reject it. Mm-hmm. Um, but not a, in a glib way, not just saying like, I don't see color in that very basic way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's why it really perplexes me that this is seen as an anti-black argument. But last week, at Bard, there was an anti-Semitism and racism conference where Ibram X. Kendi came to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't hang around to hear other people speak, uh, well, but, 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 but he came to speak. Mm-hmm. And in the question and answer period, you know, something he had said kind of really stuck out to me. He said, and I think he was, I don't know if he was taking a shot at my book, but it was exactly against my book. He said, racists want um, to get rid of race. They want a society where inequality just becomes invisible. And like, basically in, in, in France, you can't mention race and no one has a group like categories. Mm-hmm. Racists want to get rid he of said, race. That's, that's the dream of the real racist. And I said, respectfully, I really disagree with you because in my own research and writing, I've interviewed some people that are very racist, you know, uh-huh. like your Richard Spencer's, the European thinkers in France who have inspired him. And that is absolutely not what they want. He said they want a post-racial society where everybody's invisible. What they actually want is a very, very visible uh, racialized society where people are separated. Absolutely. They, Which is that precisely is, why they're it's the racist. Opposite. Yes. Yeah. They do not want uh, <laughs> yeah. like uh, um, unlearning race. Yeah. Well, they, they say it very clearly. And yeah. I was astonished that one of our, you know, celebrity public intellectuals on race and anti-racism could just be so off. Well, there is an, not knowing what yeah, actually yeah. what white racists even think. I mean, there is an uncomfortable proximity between like the Richard Spencers of the world and black identitarians who forcefully believe in their blackness and can't, they can't leave it alone they can't stop talking about it. They can't stop thinking about it, how it fills them with pride and they're bursting at the seams and they just want to sing the praises of being black all the time. That's how Richard Spencer feels about his whiteness. And, and he thinks that, that he thinks that it's a good thing that people are reinvesting. Absolutely. It, like, because your tribalism, the more you invest, um, then it affects me and it makes me intensify my tribal feelings. And that's exactly what he even said. And you could say, okay, he's a troll or whatever. No, but he wants that. And he wants 
you to have your racial identity in your place and he has it in his place and stay away. If you look at any of the history of, uh, particularly in this country, of racist movements, neo-Nazi movements and similar things, the uh, frequency with which they are in communication with other separatist groups of different races is pretty, it's pretty common. Yeah. I mean, oh yeah. It's, it's just saying like, okay, we love what you're doing because we want our own homeland too. And we definitely don't want you in it. And so provided you're doing this, we can just agree on where you'll go and where we'll go. And the idea mm-hmm. that they don't like that. I mean, I can think of a million examples. The Nazi, so the Nazi um, admiration for uh, Arab uh, supremacists, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, in, in Japan, in Japan, yeah. American has had positive things to say about Richard Spencer. Oh, really? Yes. Is that true? You know it. I, I think I, it seems familiar to me. Yeah. yeah. That, that might be right. Richard yeah. Spencer is right. Yeah. 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 Well, it, it doesn't surprise <laughs> me. I think that I mean, it does surprise me that somebody would, that, uh, you know, somebody with his level of celebrity would say that racists don't like yeah. the concept. A post-racial society is actually the nightmare of real racists. Mm-hmm. What's always stood out to me is the fact that this has consequences. It has consequences that you believe yourself black and as much as it has consequences that you believe yourself white. And there's a sense in which lots of aspects of our identities are constructed. We talked earlier about sort of national identity and heritage, sure. et cetera. But it's, I think, not so much in ignoring the phenotypic traits and sort of the patterns of human difference that we perceive when we start to categorize one another. Because I think oftentimes when people hear me say something like, I don't, I don't self-identify as black, it's like, this is almost, this is almost comical. Like, yeah, I look at you, you can and get I can tell at. that you're different. Yeah, sure. Um, but I think I've never seen someone who doesn't know you mm-hmm. and isn't familiar with the kind of rudiments of this argument mm-hmm. um, react in a positive way to say not positive way, but not completely incredulous, like a scandalized that. way. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm sorry. You, what? Well, probably you've never, never seen a black person who hasn't responded to me in a positive way. Quite, quite frankly, like when I meet people of other races, it's sort of 50, 50 and perhaps even a little more skewed in favor of, well, that's refreshing. Yeah. Um, but amongst like fellow black people, the, it can either be incredulousness or utter disgust. Um, well, let me ask you, very, very very seldom do I meet someone and they say, Oh, you know, I've been having similar thoughts. Uh, I do get, I do get feedback from, from like not extremely online black journalists necessarily, Mm -hmm. but from, from people outside of, outside of the the culture industry, I do get uh, black people who say that, um, it resonates with them and that's how they feel. Wow. Yeah. That's really, good. I wouldn't say that's the, the, I, I wouldn't say that that's the norm, but it's, uh-huh. it, it, it happens frequently enough. That, Any of them that would go on the record who's, who wouldn't yeah, mind I, you saying their name? They're not <laughs> famous people. I get, uh-huh. I get, you know, I get emails and, uh, and feedback on Twitter from people that just say that, you know, th- that this is fundamentally how they feel. Mm. People who are famous say that they agree too. They just won't go on the record. Well, that but black gonna, people, that, that's that was, what I was yeah. precisely my question is that why is it? And I won't out them. That, <laughs> you that nobody, I mean, outing is funny that we even talk about um, outing and that term became a term because it was, it was something that would ruin your career or make your life difficult. People knowing you're gay, like Bayard Rustin. And by the way, I checked, he was arrested um, as a young man and sent to, to jail for two months. Wow. For being caught in the back of a car with two men in Southern California. It was oh wrong about God. Virginia. Um, but yeah, why is all of this happening now? I guess there's a, you know, a lot to, to chew on, but you know, I mentioned on the episode of the podcast when I was walking at bed and uh, what was the t-shirt I said, you know, melanin, melanin. queen or something <laughs> yeah. like that. And there's a woman walking by with this. And, and I yeah. said to Camille, he's like, yeah, I saw one of those the other day. And I increasingly 
See, like, you know, Asada taught me. That's the common one, mm-hmm. the Asada Shakur one. Mm-hmm. Taught you apparently how to kill New Jersey State troopers and then hide out in Cuba. I don't know. I guess that's what she, what she taught to other people. Um, I, can't, I, can't, I can't touch that. <laughs> are, you, are you friends with her? Do you know her family? I just, yeah. like, that's, that conversation is so heated and I've never really yeah, <laughs> researched it. You know, no, it's, it is, it's one of those things that... Um, Didn't it, Trump make it, like, one of the first things he said when he came into office, like, he's going to get Asada back from Cuba? I, I think there Did was some... He was really, like, obsessed with that at first. Oh. I, I remember him saying something about it, which surprised me that he even knew who she was. But yeah, uh, I, don't, I don't imagine that most white racists are particularly fired no, up by something like no, that. No, they don't know who that is. No, I've been trying yeah. to find her just to talk to her, but she's, she's she comes out once in a while in Cuba, mm-hmm. but she's under the protection of the state there. But why is it now that I'm seeing these sweatshirts in a time in which if I say, and I again talked about this on the show, but somebody that I was on a crew with and I said, well, no, I mean, today it's, it's better to be black than any other time in American history. It's obviously, it's obviously, the case. I, mm-hmm. I mean, but you would have thought that I was like Orville Faubus or something. And like, just going <laughs> off about, it was like this quizzical look met by like kind of an angry response of like, how, how could you ever think that? Because the conversation is so constant, not that it's, it's, you know, a particular way in which we talk about it. It's just that it's always talked about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel so much that it's talked about that people start, I think, believing in this conception that it must be the worst time in, you know, since slavery. So why is it now that this one would think that a book like yours, and it's a sentiment that Camille uh, holds and is quite open about that we would be sort of ambling towards that after a while. And it seems like the opposite is true. I think there's a few, it's a, it's a very complicated thing that I think I can point out a few reasons for one is, um, the extraordinary hope that was placed in, in what Obama's presidency would mean for our society in retrospect, way too much for any one man's achievement, even though I believe that symbolic power is, is real. And Mm -hmm. I I believe that uh, it has fundamentally reshaped uh, American society in ways that will pay dividends for a long time. But there's this disappointment that it didn't deliver all that was hoped. And then Trump following on the heels of this extreme kind of disappointment. And so um, I think for a lot of oppressed groups, it's easier. It was a like confirmation of what they, it's like, uh, of course the country is, is, is fundamentally white supremacist and it will never change. It's the idea that the world, um, never changes. It's easier to accept in the idea that the world changes slowly and imperfectly. Does it say something about, uh, today now that the, the expression you use is the right one is that it's white supremacist, which is the two words that I hear so frequently it replaced now. replaced racism. It did. Yeah. And it's so, it's a, such a stronger sentiment too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the Archie Bunker racism where at the end of the show, he's like sh- shown up by Sammy Davis Jr. making mm-hmm. him look like a fool or something. White supremacy, you can't show up. These are people who believe that genetically that, you know, from the, from the celestial, that we are a better people as white people. When did, is that sort of say something about today too? I just realized that all that's terms right. have become, um, harsher superlative now, yeah. you mm-hmm. know, it's, there's not sexism anymore. There's patriarchy. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it's always pointing to a structural component, which, which makes it uh, outside of the realm of individual agency. But I wanted to just say that I think that part of the reason why the conversation is the way it is now is also social media. Um, people are in constant communication with each other now. And so really you can see consensus form. Um, whereas I think before it was obviously conversations were a lot less organized. And I don't think that people realized how many other people were on the same page with them. So there's that. Um, 
And then I think that there's also just the absolute fact that there is actual cultural currency and power to be obtained in a, in a, in a, in a victim stance. Um, not just for racial stuff, but all around, you know, you can get a lot out of um, every, even Trump, he got the presidency by kind of embracing a victim uh, narrative, you know, Um, that pays dividends. And so I think that there's a reluctance. uh, I think that some people would probably say, look, we're starting to win now. Why would I give this up? Like my black identity is um, keeping them on the hook. I'm getting heard. I'm, I've got my columns or whatever, my bestsellers. Like, whoa, we're, we're getting somewhere with this. Mm. Why would I step out of that? Why would I give that up? Yeah. I mean, to the victim thing is that, I mean, I had a conversation with a, with a gay friend the other day who explained uh, the Q in LGBTQ. Whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I said, queer. I, I always thought that was just um, the pejorative, not even that, but just that it was a gay person. Um, apparently it's not, it's a, it's a particular identity. Yeah, but it hasn't, apparently you can, you know, be a man who sleeps with women and and still be queer. And I was thinking about this and trying to get my head around it. And, you know, I'm trying to be, to understand where this, I mean, this person was very skeptical, uh, as a gay man too. And I realized (laughs) the broadening of this stuff. Well, I totally remember one of our former guests who said, you know, I used to be a gay Tory HIV positive immigrant. And mm. now I'm just cis, um, which I thought was quite funny. Um, but you know, I mean, th- these broadening of these categories is that, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a great time to be alive and a great time to be in this country when you realize that people chase oppression, which other places in the world, people run away from and run away from their family. Uh, and other generations here, my yeah. father would be appalled to be defined as a victim. You know, yeah. mm. there's a kind of, it's recent, and mm-hmm. I think that the, the, the other component to, to answer your question in the longest possible way that I can think of, the, 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 <laughs> the other component of it is um, that you have to reach a certain level of comfort to begin complaining about the kinds of things. Um, you're right. It's the best time ever in America to be black. And that allows you to start looking around and saying, you know what? There's microaggressions all around me. My, fa- my father, you don't have time to talk about microaggressions when when, when you're from the state that's lynched the most people, yeah. you know, I'm serious though. Yeah. A microaggression requires a certain a, a amount of comfort to, to start to focus on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't, I don't have a good, good answer to that question. And I've, I've thought about it a lot and it, I've also had the question put to me a number of times. So I've, I've had the occasion to question. try and talk about it. Yeah. yeah. But I, I just don't know. Um, there, it's certainly the case that you draw power from it and all of that, I don't disagree, but I just don't know. I, don't know. I, I think there's also the power thing is interesting in two, in two directions, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it, the power. I, I once wrote a column about this and I cannot believe that I did. And I would never probably write it today, honestly, because it's just too terrifying to do for the Daily Beast. And I don't know, maybe 2011. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how quick this stuff changed. And I remember writing the sentence that the most toxic charge in public life mm-hmm. also carries the lowest evidentiary standard. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, there are people well, like you've me. You've at least said it publicly in the last couple I, of years. Oh, I so. have. I say it a lot because I, because yeah. because it's it's the only thing that I've written that I remember. I don't remember anything else. <laughs> I literally don't. Um, people say like, "Hey, remember you wrote?" Eminent, like, I remember that, when no you. I remember. I remember something you wrote when you found out Jonah oh, Lair yeah, yeah, was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's that too. Yeah. I'm sure you remember yeah, that. It's only when I'm like stomping on someone's career or oh yeah, nothing else. Not gleefully. No, not, not gleefully. gleefully. But but you know, because on the other end of that. The power, there's, there's so many people that are just terrified of 
I mean, I never thought about the things that I said with such people say, no, that's good. Right. I mean, and there's some element of truth to that. Right. Sure. It's some element of truth that, you know, we, people are careful and we care yeah, they're about careful and people yeah. are, and it's in, and you know, what people call PC is just, you know, a politeness, which isn't true by the mm-hmm. way. I mean, there's some, like there's something about that that is true, but the larger sense and how far it's gone is that you're terrified. Uh, I mean, if you misuse someone's pronoun mm-hmm. these days or, or, or get it I wrong. was terrified teaching class at a small liberal arts college recently. Yeah. I was really focused on pronoun, getting it right and not being yeah. misperceived. Well, because it's, no one cares about your intentions. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that's the thing that's so different. I mean, you go back and read like issues of, you know, the Black Panther newspaper and the concerns in that paper are the police and sort of global revolution and, you know, large encomiums to like North Korean, the North Korean Communist Party. I mean, legitimately. And it's it's now this kind of like, don't the word that you use might not be the right one. And people might like stepping on a landmine. And the difference has changed so much. And one would imagine that going from there to here would be a celebratory time. So I don't know how much longer we can push this, but I did want to get into some of the criticism that I've seen directed at your book and give you an opportunity to address some of it. And then I was going to take some shots at you myself because you're here and I'm petty. Um, (laughs) But Sinke Henderson is a character on the interwebs. And I saw some sort of Twitter exchange um, involving the two of you. And I was tagged on it as well. And I I sort of jeered him um, because I'm petty, as I mentioned. Um, But Two things. One, there's this phrase black conservative um, that was involved in there. And I suspect it's something that's been directed at you in a couple of different instances. It's something I know I've had directed at me. It doesn't quite fit, but I'd like to have you talk about it. But two, the specific things that he said um, about you um, that in your book, you tended and specifically your first book, you tend to focus on errant black behavior and make no mention of the forces that shaped that behavior. I don't know that that's true, but I'd like for you to respond to that. Um, but also just this general sensibility that there is a contemporary black struggle, like act, active oppression that is directed at black people and that perhaps your book and your work doesn't give due deference to that. Um, so I wonder if you have thoughts on that. Sure. I mean, the, in the first case, uh, my first book, Losing My Cool, I was trying to talk about human agency and culture and how culture, uh, affects people's self-perception or group perception. Um, I thought I was being pretty clear that this is a group of people that have historically been oppressed and that, you know, they're still like class, their elements. I was trying to be very clear that I was talking about middle-class black behavior. I was not talking about people who are stuck in the ghetto in my first book. I was talking about how, um, a kind of, uh, street credibility became, um, conflated with racial authenticity for people like myself who actually were not struggling, um, in a way that that made any kind of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, th- so that bothered me that, you know, I, that criticism bothered me, but you know, I thought that he was making a good faith effort in that review to kind of, um, he was critical of some of the discourse. He was critical of the way that, uh, that Coates essentializes mm-hmm. blackness. And he was, he was, he was, he was, he was hoping that there would be some kind of good critique out of, I guess, both of my books, but he was disappointed that he didn't find it there. Mm-hmm. And he was disappointed that, um, uh, you, me, Glenn Lowry, John McWhorter and Coleman, um, almost got to the point of having like the right ideas, which are his ideas, but we couldn't quite get there because we're blinded <laughs> by our conservatism. 
which just kind of bothered me because he doesn't care. He, he revealed that he doesn't care about terms, about accuracy mm-hmm. in, in language because he called us conservatives on the episode. We actually addressed that. We talked about that. And everybody in the room said, I think Glenn is the only one that's ever identified himself as a conservative. Mm-hmm. And then Glenn no longer does. Uh, he very famously left yeah. the conservative movement in the mid nineties after Dinesh D'Souza's end of racism book and yeah. the reaction to that and, and Charles Murray. And when I mentioned this on Twitter to, to Sinka, he said, it doesn't matter how you self-define like your positions are conservative. Which, which is, which is, that's debatable on a lot of levels. I think it actually does matter how you self-define. Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't care about language. He, def- he, he defined my wife in the review. He called her um, an aristocrat. I wish <laughs> that my wife was an aristocrat. My yeah. life would be very called, different if she was like nobility. So she actually, like, she's a very not extremely online person. And she was just like, please correct this, you know? And like, and, and he like begrudgingly changed the language to scion of a bourgeois family. She was like, she's like, I keep getting socially promoted in these crazy ass reviews about my husband's book. Scion of a bourgeois family. We are two freelance writers. Is this the review of your book in the daily worker? This is, this is a common critique. Uh, These, these kind of, this was in book form too. You know, like, like this, this 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 kind of idea of like there's some kind of privilege that like my wife gets she's she's from a broadly drawn middle to upper middle class it's not crazy actually you know like she, she's lucky to have been you know she 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 didn't grow up poor mm-hmm. but to call to to then take that and call that an aristocrat or a scion of a bourgeois family i mean mm-hmm. it just there's no there's no the need to act. Went to Harvard, just so you know. I know, yeah. I know. <laughs> but there's no need to actually UMass think Amherst, through. <laughs> if anyone's paying attention at home, my wife went to a public university in yeah. France, in Paris. She went to the Sorbonne. But there's no need. He doesn't care. And actually, he started to get mad at her and called her petty for for trying to make a distinction between being vaguely upper middle class and being actually called like really affluent. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But yeah. it doesn't matter. Just like it doesn't matter that, that he called us conservative because we don't we don't agree with exactly what he thinks. Well, are there other critiques that have been offered by reviewers or other things that you've thought about with respect to your work related to sort of how a black conservative might approach traditional issues and how you sort of find yourself talking about them in public? Do you ever feel like you're like you need to give additional deference to the concerns. No, I've never thought that. I don't think very much about, um, black conservatives. I've never, um, I I'm so far away from being a conservative or Mm -hmm. from voting Republican or anything like that, that I I don't even think about that. I Mm -hmm. I engage with the left. I think one of the things that drives people crazy about people who don't like, uh, the kind of work I'm doing and people like, you know, in this book form review, I was lumped with, um, Barry Weiss, who's a good friend who I really like and respect and, and love. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were called incoherent because we, um, you know, basically not being an ideologue makes you incoherent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the things that people hate about people like Barry Weiss, or, or I'd put myself there, is that um, 
you're, it's like the narcissism of small differences. You are a liberal. You basically agree on everything, but you don't exactly agree with their vision of the world. And so they actually right. hate you. Right. They don't give a damn about people who are actually, they never talk about actual black conservatives. Mm-hmm. Those people never like read the work of Thomas Sowell mm-hmm. and, uh, and get mad about it. They get mad about somebody that's like 99.8% <laughs> overlapping with them. Yeah, you know? yeah, Larry Elder is a black conservative. Yeah. Armstrong Williams is a black conservative. I always find it's weird. Who gets to choose which overlap is the one that makes you the other, right? So yeah. for instance, I have some overlap with Bernie Sanders. I don't think anyone would ever call me sort of a, a card carrying, you know, Nicaraguan socialist as Bernie Sanders <laughs> was in the eighties. Nobody would mistake me for that. Despite the fact that I have a bunch of overlap there on a, on a number of issues, but for, with race in particular, you could, you know, want to raise the marginal tax rate to 70%. You could be, you know, pro-choice, pro-gay marriage, everything, you know, down the line. All of that, yeah. Down the line, you are. Yeah, yeah. Um, communist. Um, <laughs> except, d- if, except, except the tax rate, if I, if I ever, you know, get some... Yeah, well, if, if this book does really well, you'll <laughs> ask to lower that tax rate. Then I'm like Lil Nas X, I want to <laughs> rethink that. <laughs> but why, in, you know, with, with, you know, race, and particularly when the, the two of you writing about it and, and talking about it, is that those Th- things for that correction? There. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to get you yeah. to write something. Um, but those two things right there, like just, just that it doesn't matter what you think. And any the other things you become a conservative, they don't even say conservative on the issue of race. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just inevitable. You're just a black conservative. You're a black conservative. Well, it's, it's like, but I have all these liberals. Oh, well yeah. Don't, don't try to fake it. We know you. Yes. Yeah. Is, is it the cultural critique that, yep. that comes up? I think that's Victim probably blaming. the thing. Yeah. It's like, I mean, very early on, Coates told me that, like, you know, I can't even like discuss your book because the first book, because like, I can't even like give like a cultural critique air, you know, that's just that debate's over. That's a conservative take, you know, it's just over. Yeah. The subject is closed. If, if you, I, mean, if, I suppose if that's the criteria, then I'm, I'm in trouble because I, I do think that the cultural, that cultural critiques are worthwhile, not because I think black culture is deficient, but because I don't think there's any reason not to analyze. Any what group of human of beings culture. does not have right. a daily, very important interaction with cultural norms right. and traditions. That's insane to but think that you could have any meaningful culture. Yeah. yeah. But how can you have a meaningful conversation about how people's lives are shaping out with with it by ignoring culture, of course, mm-hmm. culture isn't everything and structure matters and lots of things matter. Class matters, but like to exclude something as fundamental to human life as culture, seems mm-hmm. to me like you, you're not actually interested in like solving problems. I mean, think of the intersection of the, the idea um, of one cannot talk about culture and shouldn't critique culture, especially in any significant way, or it actually means much. And the idea of cultural appropriation, mm-hmm. exactly. something that, that we own it. Right. And you're taking it from us. But don't this ever say ours. that. Don't ever say that there's something that's uniquely about ours that's wrong. Exactly. But don't you ever wear your hair like that. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> it's a weird thing to have like you're stealing this part of our culture. Let's talk about the culture. How dare you? Yeah. I, I, you know, pick a lane, people. Yeah. But I, I also think in your work, you do you do pay attention to historic injustices and the consequences of those in a contemporary context. Because I'm actually I'm truly interested in I want um, I want to see black life be a lot better in America. You know, I want I want improvements in in the way that we imagine race and that we in our lives. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that you can you how can you exclude historical oppression? How can you exclude any of these components that go into making uh, our American 
society what it is today. Mm-hmm. The, the one thing that is always stuck in my craw is it just doesn't seem that there are many people who are willing to entertain the possibility that there is a degree to which you can emphasize race too much in right. certain contexts, that you can, in fact, be over-concerned with the role that race is playing in your life, that you could imagine that bad things are happening to you on, a, on the basis of your race, whether or not they are. And it, I mean, this is just, it's necessarily true that that's possible. And what I, what I do do publicly when I'm engaged in these conversations is I at least raise that issue. And, and, and people instances. get very angry at you for that. Well, I see online. Yeah. yeah but, but, and, and I, and I get it, but it seems appropriate that someone does, mm-hmm. that someone scrutinizes the many instances of, you know, black man assaulted by white police officer and asks, well, is there more to this particular story? Is there anything here that's worthwhile? And I've, I've always wondered why the fact that I am vehemently supportive of criminal justice reform and I am, I am determined to see certain kinds of reforms instituted that would make it more difficult for law enforcement officers to engage in bad behavior without scrutiny across the board, that I think it's a mistake to, to view certain issues as predominantly racial issues when they are broader sort of categorical bads that we should all be concerned with, and that you know, white people are, are as likely in some instances to be abused by police officers in certain contexts as black people are, um, and in some cases perhaps even more likely. That ought to matter to people. Um, but no, it doesn't get you I, any credibility. Trying to say, if you're actually interested in improving American society and holding law enforcement to account, then it should matter. But but that's not actually the same thing as being interested in a narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, are there any critiques of the book that you've thought were particularly worthwhile? Anything that you wish you'd approached slightly differently? It's that good. I, no, <laughs> I'm still, it's, it's a new book. I'm still trying to sell books. Really. You're not going to get me to, under, no, but okay. I, 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 I would have, you know, I try to say that uh, there's an aspect of uh, American life that's always going to be defined by class. And oftentimes when we're talking about, Americans are very bad at talking about class. So oftentimes when we're talking about race, we're really talking about class. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would have liked to devote more time and attention to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that I think has, there's a lot more to be written about that. Yeah, I, I actually saw you tweet um, Racecraft, Barbara Fields' um, book. Seminal book, which, yeah. Yeah, I, I read it, and I, I find a lot to like in it. Um, interestingly, it's the economic policy where I, I tend to diverge from her. And when I do think about the things in your book that I wanted to talk to you about, there were some of the like concluding sentiments. Um, the United States was founded on the triple sin of slavery, genocide. That's and the mantra that I, that I repeat, but that's yeah. I'm, in the book. I'm repeating that because mm-hmm. that's Coates's mantra. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the, you know, the majority of the world has been subjugated under the yoke of European colonialism. Um, are there are there aspects of that mantra that you yourself embrace or at least still? I mean, like, I think it, that tone that I'm using there is not I'm not trying to be like glib. I'm repeating the talking points sure. in that section. Um, what is it? I mean, what does it mean to say that the the majority of the world has been subjugated under the yoke of European colonialism. On one level, of course, that's true, but the, the majority of the world has been subjugated under the force of some dominant power mm-hmm. at all times of human history. Like what we were talking about before, it's arbitrary to choose um, the moment that Europe became 
the dominant force to, to begin all of human suffering at that point. It's mm-hmm. an arbitrary decision. The, the story of human suffering is as old as the story of humanity. Right, right. The world has been shaped by it. But, but what does that mean? You know, what does that mean significantly for my life as it's being lived right now as a person who is lucky enough to have been raised in a middle-class environment to get, to get an education? That being aware, hyper-aware at all times, being kind of like high on history mm-hmm. and mining the past, being addicted to finding fresh sources of outrage, in the past, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, based on you know something as broad as European colonialism, it doesn't make sense for my life in 2019. Right. Yeah, I've, I've always been fascinated by the degree to which history is just kind of this subjective enterprise, um, and the way that you go about understanding yourself in the sort of broad spectrum of all of the occurrences that humans have been through, in, in a national context or otherwise. Like there's a a lot of subjectivity there. You make decisions about the things that you'll place an emphasis on. And it's certainly possible to cast all of human history. I mean, it's possible to cast all of human history or recent history from the perspective of racial disadvantage and racial disharmony and white supremacy, I, I should say, perhaps just explicitly. But it isn't obvious to me that that's the best way, that that's the most destructive way. Particularly when, I mean, obviously there's, race is a a big factor in in, in certain of those areas, but, you know, we're in my apartment now and I have a lot of books around. If you look at any of these books, it's a book about oppression somewhere, Mm -hmm. some, somewhere, sometime, something. And oftentimes it's racially motivated. Oftentimes Mm -hmm. it's religiously motivated. And oftentimes it is not, it's just, you know, a land grab or a sort of expansion of an empire. And most of the time, there is, you know, a sort of undercurrent of race if you're there's two sort of warring societies, but not always, mm-hmm. you know. And I mean, it's it's to, to there's a uniqueness that Americans think that you know whoever the comedian was that said that America's the type of people that go to China and say, look at all these minorities. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, we think that we invented racism. We think we invented slavery. Uh-huh. And 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 there's a pride in our awfulness. Right? Yeah. But the thing is, is that, that there's nothing unique about it. There's nothing special about it. And as a matter of fact, I mean, where I, you know, tread the line and I must get in trouble is just in saying that I think that all things considered, um, we've dealt with it reasonably well because mm-hmm. I can think of people who haven't mm-hmm. and I can think of a lot of people who haven't. And, and, you know, Europe is going through its tumultuous period right now, um, mm-hmm. particularly now after the, after the migrant crisis, but I mean, everywhere you go. And I, we talked about this once, uh, Camille and I, uh, about the immigration issue is that um, I'm a very kind of pro immigration guy, as I know you, you, mm-hmm. you are too. And I, I suspect you're as a pretty liberal guy. I'm a card carrying member of the left. Yeah. You're a, le- you're a lefty. I presume that's, I pre- presume that's also, well, you know, some people on the left, like Bernie Sanders don't like immigration because yeah. it depresses Open working, borders is a working, Koch brothers conspiracy. It's a Koch right. brothers conspiracy. No, it, they're, I'm, they're the I'm, ones I'm, who paid I'm, me I'm to a believe liberal. in it. Uh, Bernie yeah. Sanders is to the left. I'm a liberal. Yeah. And, and, but anywhere you go, I mean, where we see Donald Trump and the, this absurdity that, that comes out of DC every day. And, uh, there are a bunch of immigration crises across the world right now and every one of them is ending poorly. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Venezuelans are pouring into Brazil and being beaten up. Same thing is true in Colombia, various places. There's just like, even Nicolas Maduro uh, doesn't have time to fix the water supply or anything that has been on TV thundering about what is happening to Venezuelans. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see Rohingya being beaten up in India. Everywhere mm-hmm. you go, there's a transfer of population and people don't like it. The, you know, someone comes in, they don't like it. And there is something that when we talk about race these days in America, 
And I think your book is so refreshing and Camille's perspective is, is refreshing. And I, it annoys me that people don't read this stuff um, because they think it's kind of toxic and they shouldn't, they, nobody should. Right. Mm-hmm. Because these kinds of, I mean, I don't find ideas dangerous in that way, mm-hmm. but you know, what, what, what bothers uh, me about it is that we have, there's such an emphasis on it these days in such a particular way that the, all the achievements seem to be being overwhelmed by the toxicity of the argument right now. Mm-hmm. And I can't, I mean, it, it, as I said, I still can't get over that conversation I had that I in some way wasn't surprised by when the person themselves was surprised that I said, this is a great time in America to be a racial minority. And the, the, the incredulity is, and I think that there's a disconnect between how much we talk about it, just volume wise yeah. and the offenses that people see, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like, well, let's, you know, the Jesse Smollett was like, you know, I'm not gonna wait for a real thing to happen. It's not gonna <laughs> gotta be, pro- not, be proactive. Be proactive about this because you know, I gotta Who can wait around for this yeah. to actually not, happen. I can't wait in the cold in Chicago waiting for racists to amble by and take a punch at me <laughs> while I'm eating my sandwich. Two, but, yeah, go ahead. No, two questions I wanted to ask before we before we wrap up, both related to music. Um, are you partial to the baby or Lil Baby? Do you have a, a, a I am I have a very clear, it's Lil Baby. It's, oh, yeah. Oh, wow. I'm, oh, yeah, we're on different sides of this. <laughs> this is one of the things I'm, you want to take issue with the me The baby, I, I think, is quite good. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked that Why I is that still like that music. Lil Baby. Oh, no, I'm just, okay. I, I put them together because they both have baby in their names. One of the things that one really, I'm glad that you bring right this up now, though, because this is a very of, black conversation. This is a trap. That's why I get him to stop talking. Yeah. Talking about little baby and huge baby, big baby, that baby. So it bothers me so much that people, people, my, in my first book, I explicitly say that I am not writing musicology. I'm not critiquing hip hop as a music. Yeah. That hip hop music is obviously it's super seductive. It's brilliant. Mm. This is not a, I'm not some guy saying jazz music is better than hip hop music. What I was saying was that hip hop music uh, has a lot of content in it that conveys values, values mm-hmm. and norms matter. Yeah. Um, people are like shocked that I still listen to hip hop. Of course I, I, I grew up in the nineties. Yeah. Yeah. I, hip, that's like the sound of my life. I listen to a lot of other things now too, because I've lived more mm-hmm. and I've opened myself up, but I listen to Gunna, Lil Baby all the time. I listen to Drake, Constantly, mm-hmm. Kanye West, uh, you know, all what was of your 90s hip hop. I was really, 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 really a Jay Z guy. Uh, really? Yeah. Okay. I, it was like more in adulthood that I, I started to um, get more into Nas and people like that. But when I was growing up, I was, it was like Wu Tang Clan was extremely important. Yeah. But for me, Jay Z was like an icon, you mm-hmm. know, of just everything that's like so cool about America, you know? Um, I'm, yeah, I find Drake to be an extraordinarily fascinating character. I really like trap music. My daughter has listened to more Future uh-huh. and, um, and like Sway <laughs> Lee than, uh, than you can believe. So when you're yeah. thinking about that song coming from the, the uh, hospital, you're not thinking very much anymore. You're just putting all the trap music on the background. <laughs> I played the feist in the car, but yeah. like we didn't have time in the book to get into the fact that my daughter came up to me the other day and she was like... Papa, when like you're a grandpapa, are we still going to be listening to this merit? Like this? Yes. <laughs> and the answer is yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, and I was kind of like, yeah, you yeah. know, like I, I'm, this is like dad rock at this point. You know? <laughs> um, and I asked that question because I'm That's also, what, oh, I'm sorry. I just want oh, to no. say one more point. Go for it. This is what I'm trying to tell people. 
questioning and ultimately rejecting racial essentialism mm -hmm. does not mean that you have to toss away the cultural traditions and, 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 and achievements that mean something to you. It doesn't mean that you give up your music. Mm -hmm. People seem to think that if you stop believing or identifying as a race, mm -hmm. then that music becomes something that's not part of who you are. And that's not true. Well, what this is actually where I wanted to go with this. It's about your relationship to music because it comes up in a number of cases in your work um, with respect to sort of categorizing music as black music or as sort of viewing even like hip hop as part of kind of black culture. When in fact, I, I think obviously, it was cosmopolitan from the start. Yeah, the impact has always been far broader than that. Even if the people who are its most successful practitioners like, happen to identify as black, their fans have always well, been the, a the creators of in the beginning were like Jamaican immigrants to the Bronx, mm -hmm. always some Puerto Rican mm -hmm. um, components to it. And, the and like very early Jewish kids, Jewish kids too. in Brooklyn and stuff. I mean, it was always a, yeah. it was always a kind of pluralistic art form and obviously the, way, the, it's, most, it's, the most famous it's rooted in black in black musical traditions what we would call black musical traditions obviously it's coming from sampling soul and funk records and dub records and in dub jamaica records. but like, it's funny because jamaica music and coming to the bronx and queens the most famous uh woman who owned a record store in kingston this is like 60s 70s comes to uh new york and now runs the, i think the largest distributor of uh reggae in reggaeton records. And, um, she's a Jamaican woman has a heavy Jamaican accent and she's Chinese. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. She's like an Asian woman. And wow. she's like, I, I first heard her talk. I was like, what, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> What's her name? Uh, I, the last name I think is Chin. Um, I can't remember what, um, yeah, but she, but she's like very well known in the, in the sort of reggae world. Yeah. But it's, 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 it's totally meaningless when you have people talking about cultural appropriation, and this stuff is that you have this woman who is the queen of Kingston reggae and mm -hmm. like just, you know, made all the careers of everyone from scratch Perry to like King Tubby on. And it's like, she's like Jamaican. You've mm -hmm. heard her on the telephone or something. She's like, Oh, she's a Jamaican woman. Wow. But she's Chinese. She's yeah. from Chinese family. Yeah. I and mean, part of the reason I ask is cause you know, my, we like a lot of the same music, but I also have this thing where I bristle a bit when I hear people describe like Donny Hathaway or Marvin Gaye or Stevie wonder as these like brilliant black musicians, because it's a, it's a weird qualifier. Well, here's the thing, right? A certain group of people that went through a certain experience in a certain geographical location started some musical traditions that became the basis of Amer all American popular music. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's nothing about blood or skin in that. It's right. just that these people went through certain experiences that led to the blues and, and, certain, and certain key chord combinations, right, you right, know? Right, that's what it, That's what we mean. That, well, that's what, that is what we mean but there is obviously more to it than that. Of I course, think, because, you know, because we're, we're because kind of prisoners to because the, of the way that racecraft race works yeah. through our society. Yeah. But, 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 but you don't have to give up any pride that you have to say that this group of people um, whom I count myself as descended from mm -hmm. in a certain place mm -hmm. going through a certain experience did this. Yeah. But it could have been otherwise, you know, because there's nothing inherent about it. Mm -hmm. Like the, uh, the, I talked about this a lot with Adrian Piper, the idea that, uh, it's inherently racially black to dance well. That's just not true. Mm -hmm. And there's plenty of white people and Asian people that dance better than plenty of black people. Mm -hmm. All this, it never works on the individual level to, to use these categories so broadly, but we, we, we're addicted to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anything you want to get to before we punch out of here? Yeah, I wanted to ask you, um, 
because this is something that I get a lot and I've been kind of, because you don't think of yourself as being particularly privileged, though you have to not be glib about it and realize that you're lucky for things that you have. Mm -hmm. But, you know, oftentimes we always look at people that have a bit more than us. Mm -hmm. So most people don't think of themselves as um, anything other than having like a bit less than they think they should have. Sure, sure. But I'm aware that I've been described a lot in the coverage that's happened of this book is like um, in the New York Times, in a review I was really happy with, I was described as prosperous, which like some of my friends were like, hmm. did he like find out that you moved into a bigger rental? <laughs> like, <laughs> prosperous is like, that's a heavy word. You know huh. what I mean? I want to be prosperous. I hope to prosper. But do you think that like your ability to take this philosophical stance mm-hmm. that you have is connected to your, to your economic su- success mm. uh, that you've had? Do you think that there has to be a necessary um, um, financial component or class component that like frees you? I, I don't know, but I doubt it. Um, and that's because, at least for me, there's always been um, an almost implicit skepticism of American racial categories. My family is um, uh, from the Caribbean, so I'm first-generation American. I actually had an interesting upbringing in that my stepfather is um, sort of uh, an African-American. Was, I don't know where his ancestry is before you know he got here. Um so I had that influence as well, but between his sort of peculiarness and the default um, antagonism there is, I think, between like native born blacks and oh, yeah. first generation black Americans, I'd always been opportunistically black, perhaps as a way to think about it. And I've always had circumstances where my blackness was sort of challenged in different circumstances. Um, so certain, so that's literally every day of your life. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean before. do you follow yourself on I mean, Twitter? <laughs> I mean, before, oh, I mean, before. even before, okay. before all of this, okay. um, at, at a minimum, like I'd had to think about like what it means to be authentically black. And that's one of the things that I really loved about your first book. I, I had to, to find ways to sort of perform, perform your blackness. Race. Um, in order to to be regarded properly by the folks who are around me, but you do um, that now too, in the sense that, like, you know, when you're in certain, my eyebrows uh, are way high now. Well, well, you, yes, you do. You yeah. know, you do. We've talked about it. Like when you were living in, in Bedsty. Oh, sure. And you know, somebody said something to you. You're not talking to that person like you talk to me. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a bit, seen, of co- I, he's a code switcher. Like, there's yeah, a bit of code switching. There's a bit of code switching. I mean, you can code switch. Yeah, like I usually, crazy. I usually get it from my wife when I used to call like the barbershop and be like, yeah, it's Steven the shop. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to be right over there. All right. One. Uh, like, <laughs> but, one. but I never, <laughs> I, I didn't that. really, I didn't really say one, yeah. but I mean, I, I never really thought, I never I never think about the code switching when I'm, when I'm doing it, it just kind of comes out. But, but I that's, mean, we that's, all that's do what it. We do. That's what we do. Everybody, everybody does. I code like, there's switch. There's a way we talk at Freethink. In yeah. France. Yeah. Because you have to be understood in the society you're moving through. At, yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. So of I don't course. even know if I gave a good answer to the question. No, but you're you saying, asking, so, so it wasn't but, dependent on your own career success yeah. to feel liberated I, in that I way. I don't think so. Um, and interestingly, I think there's a sense in which there is a perception that Folks like you or I or our friend Coleman Hughes or John McWhorter, or Glenn Lowry, that those people are enriched in some way because I can tell you that it's, it, it's much more lucrative. I know for a fact it's much more lucrative if I was making the opposite argument. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would be lecturing 
um, yeah. several times a week at mm-hmm. American universities. Mm-hmm. I think that's safe to say. Nonstop. Yeah. Do, if do my you, book was titled like my face is a crime, how my father <laughs> was suckered into white supremacy and married my mother. Yeah. I would be like, I wouldn't have time for y'all right now. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I also feel bad for your mother in this situation too. What's like, the name of your book? Jeez. We actually kind of got along. I actually, I actually think that's entirely true. Um, and part of the reason for that is because I think it is fantastically well-written and poetic and thoughtful and again, challenging. Um, I said that online. I don't know if I said it today um, in important ways. And even for me who finds so much to agree with you about philosophically, there were things that I read in there that really challenged me to think in an even more um, serious, uh, I want to use the word severe way um, about some of the things that I I do and the ways that I imagine myself in the world. Um, So I want to thank you for it. And I, I was talking to my wife before I was headed over here and I said, you know what, what most pleases me about a book like this being out there in the world is to think that there's like some 16 year old kid who's going to get a hold of this and who's going to read it and is going to feel like sort of permission to liberate themselves. That's the word. That's what books, that's what books can do. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for that. And thank you for making time. uh, Thank you. It's always a pleasure. And you know, you, you really were like impactful on my own thinking about this. I I know, know? obviously. I mean, this is what I do. (laughs) (laughs) I I kid, I kid. Thank you. You've never changed my mind on anything. (laughs) (laughs) To to be, to to be at all mentioned in the context of this book is like, again, just astonishing and wonderful for me. But really, I just, I commend it to people and um, I'm, I couldn't be more excited for the reception you're receiving. I hope, I hope you make billions of dollars from the book. It's unlikely, but I hope it anyway. His wife's an aristocrat. Doesn't yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to move into her ancestral lands when I, when this, when this writing Good, hobby just, is over. You deserve he, it. By the way, he does have a very waspy name too. Is it Thomas Chatterton Williams? <laughs> do wonderful things. His wife okay. is just Y'all very- white guys love to make fun of a guy, a, a black guy with the middle name Chatterton. Bill Maher kept calling me Sir Thomas Chatterton Williams. What's going on at Downton Abbey? I, by the way, I have to say, I don't know if you should maybe bleep this out, but I will I'll keep it. There was one kid and we had, I I went to a busing school, but there was a kid that was in the town who was black, which is pretty rare in my town. And his name was Trevor Farrington the third. I was like, "You're the guy on the Will Smith that's show." A, that's a real dancing. That's a type. That's, that's a, a real type. type in the black community. Yeah, totally. Wait, yeah. Was, is his family Jamaican? Uh, is I don't know. Is Farrington like a t- traditionally? No, Jamaican? but you you have like a lot of you guys that just take credit. Like, I I know way too <laughs> many colony, yeah. like Jamaican Barringtons. Like it's very yeah, weird. Barrington yeah. Lee. I just yeah. loved the third in his house. I think they had a bowling alley in it, oh, which is really weird. Balling and, and pretty white. Too. Balling. Uh, I would say that's not even common for white folks <laughs> yeah, to have a bowling yeah. alley in your house. But it's like why is it kind of a white people thing? Bowling. <laughs> that's right? that's what I think about all white people. They yeah, they all have bowling alleys in their mansions. White privilege. All right. I think that's it. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse.